This is an ABC podcast. G'day from Gadigal Land, I'm David Lipson. This week, the government's energy bill passes the parliament, but gas suppliers warn it'll actually force prices up. So who's telling the truth? And for a third year, COVID is disrupting holiday plans. It's nothing like the last two years, but as the government announces plans to phase out walk-up PCR testing, we'll look at how to ensure the virus doesn't ruin your Christmas. But first, the murder of two young police officers on a remote property in Queensland this week shocked the nation, and there are still more questions than answers. We have never seen this hostility towards police in Queensland before. This uh, barbaric uh, execution-style killing which took Matt and Rachel's life is not what happens in Queensland. A neighbour was also killed and two other police officers were lucky to escape alive before Special Operations Police moved in and shot the three heavily armed offenders. We believe PLY2 may be discharging round. Online posts under the name of one of the shooters have been found on Australian conspiracy forums and websites. There were anti-vaccine messages along with anti-government and anti-police views. Now, the posts have not been verified, but it's once again drawn attention to the sovereign citizen movement and radicalisation more generally in Australia. Once the picture does start to clarify, it is likely that radicalisation will form a part of it. This was the Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill. Radicalisation is not new, but it is absolutely clear from events here and around the world that conspiracy theories, disinformation and misinformation, problems as old as time, are being turbocharged by technology into terrible acts of violence. Like many who are involved in these online movements in particular, they leave breadcrumbs over the course of their engagement. Josh Roos is an associate professor at Deakin University, specialising in political and religious violent extremism. So for a prolonged period of time, one of the brothers was actually very active on these forums. He was writing to various websites, he was engaging with other users on those websites and really pushing this strong uh, both conspiracy theories and a, and a sort of sovereign citizen ideological approach as well. Yeah, that sovereign citizen movement is something that seems to come up reasonably regularly in these sorts of cases. What do we know about that movement and how big it is in Australia? Yeah, it's important to consider the origins of the movement, which really emerged from the US many years ago. And it's this idea that the original government was replaced by this fraudulent government uh, that really true citizens need to stand up and battle the government for their rights, that they don't abide by laws, they they shouldn't pay tax, uh, that the land is theirs, that they're sovereign only unto themselves. And so in in the US in particular, they're very very uh, active. And there's cases of everything from physical violence. We know that sovereign citizens have, have murdered police before in the US, but also what they call paper terrorism, where they inundate people with fraudulent paperwork and, and court cases and, and legal claims uh, until you know people move move house or, or you know, give up fighting back against them. So they're very active in the US. That spread to Australia through primarily through online avenues, including social media. 
And in, in the last decade in particular, and in the last five years, really accelerated by COVID, we've seen this, this movement grow both in size but also, uh, I'd argue, bigger. How was it accelerated by COVID? So I think, I mean, we've all lived through COVID. We've all seen these mass protests that have emerged. Now, obviously, some of those are, you know, concerned citizens and exercising a democratic right. But there was also many uh, various conspiracy movements. So QAnon, for example, which again has emerged out of the US, was very, very active in being spread through seemingly innocuous sort of platforms like TikTok. Uh, we've seen um, various other both racist, anti-Semitic, anti-women, anti-government movements spread their messages. So it might be something as simple as what they call breadcrumbing, where they, they throw out little bits and pieces of information and then invite people to find out more themselves through their forums. We've seen encrypted messaging apps where people are literally meeting online in real time and, and sharing some of the most uh, outrageous sort of conspiracy theories um, and, and bouncing off one another. And so that's got this increasingly sort of radicalising effect where people are constantly reinforcing each other. So COVID was really uh, when people were locked down at home, uh, accessing social media, looking for information. It was a perfect storm of uh, events that led to these uh, take up of these movements. The shootings in Queensland also involved a rural property. Is that a factor here too? You know, does living remotely make it easier, for example, for people to fall through the cracks? Yeah, there are many uh, fault lines emerging um, and, and we're saying, uh, for example, in this particular case, we're talking about two different jurisdictions in New South Wales and, and Queensland. We're talking about being out in the rural sort of areas that are beyond the scope of the strong reach of government, if that makes sense. But also when we look at the rural regions, we know that there are issues with, for example, uh, increasing inequality and poverty. We know that there are increasing issues with the spread of extremist narratives. The far right, for example, have gained a particular appeal in parts of um, southern New South Wales and, and Canberra. Uh, we know that, and Queensland for that matter, we know that there's an issue with ice use where individuals in, in regions are twice as likely to have used um, ice as people in the cities. So there are all sorts of significant issues that recent events cast a light on that we really need to engage with and, and really seek to study in a lot more detail. Even when you're living remotely, you can still access, obviously, social media. You know, big companies like Facebook say they are actively trying to reduce false information. Does that sort of action make a significant difference here? There's certainly been an improvement um, by, for example, Facebook. Uh, we know that when someone posts something online that there are reporting mechanisms and it might take a while, but sometimes those are taken down. But in many cases, you can report like clear-cut cases. Um, I myself personally have, and it is often like left up. It's like, well, they disregard the, uh, the report. So there's a long way to go in that space. Where we are going with social media, though, is that Twitter, for example, is now becoming a, you know, an increasingly, arguably, increasingly a hotbed of extremist sort of sentiment. We're seeing signalling by major political and business figures to some of these movements for political gain. And so really a lot more, a lot more work needs to be done. It's nowhere near resolved. Now, only a reasonably small percentage of the Australian population is on Twitter. Uh, you'd argue that most Australians don't really care what's going on on Twitter. But when we talk about the cumulative impact, we're talking Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, encrypted messaging apps, including Telegram, 
we've seen a big increase. There was some research into conspiracy theories done a couple of years ago that found more than 10% of Australians believed that the Port Arthur massacre was a false flag event, that it was somehow orchestrated or concocted. How do you possibly combat that level of distrust in in government and and society more general and and that belief in these outlandish conspiracies? Yeah, this really cuts to the heart of the the question. It's it's probably one of the most significant questions facing government uh, and, and, you know, researchers and others as a whole. And that's that trust deficit um, in government and in science and information because we've seen, again, over the years, the challenging of basic scientific facts, for example, related to climate change. Now, when it comes to uh, those alarming figures around Port Arthur, well, for, for many years, government, for, for generations, governments have relied upon that, that sense of trust and rapport with the wider public. And so, you know, when it comes to, for example, managing emergencies and natural disasters, so bushfires, floods and, and so on, COVID, there's generally been a, a mutually beneficial relationship between government and, and the people where there's been trust in government to act accordingly and to act appropriately. That's broken down and you could almost track the sort of breaking down over the last decade in particular, or just over a decade now, to global financial crisis, rapidly increasing economic inequality, and anxiety, uh, a sense of alienation amongst people who feel like they've not only lost status but they're on a downward social trajectory for the first time. But then we're talking about the rise, basically parallel to that, of social media. And social media, for the very first time in human history, brings people together who would never otherwise meet face-to-face. It's highly profitable, uh, including the spread of misinformation because it generates users. And, And so we've got this confluence of increasing inequality but also increasing information and disinformation. So those in, in unison have to be addressed, and that takes a whole-of-government approach. You can't just say this is a security issue. You can't just talk about throwing more money at policing it. You need to talk about education, meaningful employment, more broadly regulation, but also building up trust with people through citizenship. That's Josh Roos, an Associate Professor at Deakin University. The federal government's plan to cap gas prices to put a limit on soaring power bills were rushed through a special sitting of parliament this week. The Greens backed the legislation after securing a package to help households transition from gas to electricity. But all week, the arguments about electricity bills continued. Speaker, on this side of the House, we believe that Australian households and small businesses deserve this support. We believe that Australian manufacturing deserves a future. If we restrict supply of gas into the market, then we are going to see prices increase. That's what this government is sowing the seeds of. Threats and anger from the gas industry centred around a few surprise words in a proposed code of conduct still under negotiation for a more permanent intervention in the market aimed at ensuring a reasonable price for gas is maintained in the future. It did come out of nowhere. So I think the government released a a kind of document last Friday afternoon, and that document included this kind of little note that no one sort of saw coming. Steve Hamilton is Assistant Professor of Economics at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. 
which was that the minister would have discretion to 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 in future limit the prices that gas companies can charge. And in a sense, it was ad infinitum, right? It was, it was so long as prices remain elevated, the minister would have the discretion. So presumably, if prices rose in the future for some other reason, that that discretion would return. Look, I, I genuinely think that is really concerning. It's of the three measures, easily the most objectionable. And it does feel like a pretty heavy-handed intervention, as I said, into a kind of competitive market. We have to be very careful in coming in and defining what we think is quote-unquote reasonable for a competitive industry to produce in terms of profits. You know, there are industries that in the short run generate profits because of high prices, and those profits and those high prices fulfill a really important role, which is to encourage more supply to come into the market. And if you take away that incentive, you absolutely could lead to lower supply, lower investment, and and all sorts of other negative consequences in the long run. And, and so I, I find it quite concerning. Well, the government's pointed out that these companies were willing to invest in new gas supply before they started getting these record profits driven by the Ukraine war. So why would an attempt to return that profit needle to something resembling normal change their investment calculation? Yeah, I think people need to understand the nature of mining investment, right? It's not as though there's just a big well of gas and you can just tap into it without any kind of risk or cost, right? There's huge reserves of all sorts of resources all across Australia, which we're not tapping into right now. And the reason we're not doing that is because private industry has determined that doing so wouldn't be worth it. We have to understand that mining investment is incredibly risky. It's very expensive. They have to put up a huge amount of capital up front just to even determine if their reserves are, are viable. And then they have to invest all of those many billions of dollars up front, not knowing what is going to happen in future. So whether that's worthwhile, whether they're willing to risk shareholders' capital, comes down to a trade-off between how much it costs and what future returns are going to come from that. It could be the case that you invest billions in a, in a gas well and then the gas price is permanently lower and then you end up losing money. What we have to be careful about is understanding that sometimes the, the profit's going to be low, sometimes they're going to be high. Investors are making a decision based on what they expect to happen. If you take the top off the temporary but high prices that gas companies could get, then you are lowering expected profits. And there's going to be a whole lot of projects which would have been viable where firms think, yeah, every now and then I'll get a bit of extra profit and that makes this worthwhile. And they decide, in fact, that that's not worthwhile, right? And so we end up with lower gas supply. We end up with national income lower. We end up with a higher Australian dollar. We end up with lower superannuation balances because mining companies are worth less, right? There's all of these negative consequences that come about from something that looks innocuous, which is, hey, we don't want uh, gas companies making too much profit. We always need to think about unintended consequences. We did, though, see similar threats from Exxon in WA in 2006 when that state introduced a domestic gas reservation policy. In the end, the company backed down and, and still ended up making big profits. Could we be witnessing a similar game of bluff from the gas producers now on the East Coast? 
Look, I wouldn't be surprised, right? Because whether you like it or not, if you're a gas company, you don't want these policies, right? You do always need to be sceptical of some of the claims made when the person making them has a direct financial interest. I should say I don't have any interest in the gas in the gas industry. This is just my opinion. But the issue is more that we don't see the projects that didn't happen, right? So we have that WA policy. Everything looks fine. But how can we be sure, right? What would the gas market have looked like in the absence of that policy? We'll never know. And again, we shouldn't say that we should do nothing. I think we need to be pragmatic. But at the same time, we need to be upfront, honest, and critical of the costs of these measures, right? You can't just wave a magic wand, lower gas prices, and expect that that won't come at a cost. It seems that the government certainly felt that it had to do something that manufacturers were claiming they were being driven to the wall, that they would close down en masse due to these high power prices, not to mention households. Uh, The government says it considered a whole range of options, but chose this path because it won't add to CPI, the inflation index that the Reserve Bank uses to decide whether to put up interest rates. Does that claim stack up? That's a big question, David. I I think that the policy that was announced has a lot of problems with it, but we can say for sure that a suggestion that this will lower inflation might be true trivially, it might lower the CPI, but it doesn't reduce inflationary pressures in the economy. Like I could eliminate inflation tomorrow by say announcing a GST holiday for the next year, all prices would drop by 10%, but that would be a massive boost to demand in the economy, right? And so that would actually have the opposite effect of what you want, which is it would stimulate the economy and it would lead the Reserve Bank to raise interest rates. So like I do worry about the stimulatory effect of the policy. It's not massive, but it's certainly something we should think about. What about the negotiations, the warning that was given or lack thereof. Do you think there could have been a better way for the government to to put these controversial measures in place? Look, I think it was really messy. You know, before the election, the government kind of promised that this would be a new era in good government, sound government. And certainly with climate and energy policy over the last five to 10 years, it's been such a mess, right? It's been sort of chaotic and it's we've had the national energy guarantee up and then gone. We've had a whole lot of hodgepodge of different policies, as you mentioned before, some some interventions with things like gas triggers. What we really needed is some sort of sensible, rational approach to policy here. And having a draft policy proposal put out on a Friday afternoon, loaded with typos, I might add, uh, some of the reporting has suggested the negotiators really went across the policy and didn't have a lot of detail. And then it was rammed through the parliament uh, six days later, and nobody really had a chance to debate it Nobody really had a chance to kind of properly consider the policy. It's just not the way this sort of thing is supposed to go. And the government has had many, many months to do this the right way. I don't know why at the 11th hour we had such a kind of messy and unprincipled kind of approach. And that's Steve Hamilton. He's an assistant professor of economics at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Now, with Christmas just days away, most Australians will be wishing for a holiday season free from COVID. But infection rates have been rising, so many could yet face more disruptions this year. Of course, a lot has changed. Christmas 2020 was derailed for many in Sydney after its first major lockdown, with the reverberations felt around the country. 
It's been a Christmas like no other. Greater Sydney residents are now effectively locked out of every state and territory as health authorities try to bring the cluster under control. Then, this time last year, there was a depressingly familiar Christmas tale. Soaring cases threatened to jeopardise Christmas celebrations for a second year running. For many, the joy of the morning was replaced by the stress of a testing line. It's been so difficult to get here. Just to see everyone, that's all you want for Christmas. So what can we expect from our third COVID Christmas? Catherine Bennett is the Chair of Epidemiology at Deakin University. Last year, we had just come out of the Delta wave in the eastern states. We brought Delta relatively under control, uh, less so in Victoria than some of the other states. We still had over a 1,000 cases a day, but we're feeling confident because we had seen the impact that getting that vaccination rollout, particularly out to our more vulnerable parts of the community, was having on reducing the number of people ending up in hospital. But of course, we were right on the precipice. We had Omicron coming into the community, but pushed us even harder with the vaccine rollout because it now wasn't just about the first two doses. And we weren't quite sure how that would play out. We already knew it was going to be a transition. The other thing is we'd come through a series of waves and we didn't know, even with Omicron on our doorstep, what lay ahead, whether we're going to see more variants and what that would look like. But in fact, the other thing is that since this time last year, we've only really had the one major variant lineage, Omicron, but now we're dealing with subvariants. But that's a different story again. So we've, we're beginning to understand that in a different kind of way as we now live with multiple subvariants in the community at the same time. Well, yeah, a lot of Christmas plans were, were cancelled last year. We had huge lines at testing clinics, a lot of uncertainty. This year, though, what should people be doing before they meet relatives and loved ones, especially the grandparents and, and other vulnerable members of the family and friends? Well, I think, you know, we now have to continue to be aware of COVID and, and the risks associated with that. You know, we're no longer being forced to isolate in the same way that, you know, we had strict rules around that in the past. It might, you know, a positive test could stop you travelling. But now it's still about negotiating those risks, managing those risks and trying to keep Christmas safe, but also, you know, learn how we can bring families together safely through that period. Indeed, and the government's actually moving us further away from some of those emergency pandemic settings. Next year, you'll need a referral to get a PCR test. How's that going to change the way we monitor and deal with COVID-19? Well, it's important that people really understand how they can access tests. The most critical people for accessing tests are those that need an early diagnosis for antivirals. Now, they can use a rapid antigen test and that's enough to get an antiviral prescription if you're eligible. But at the same time, you might not be as likely to test positive even if you do have an infection with a rapid antigen test as you are with PCR. PCR tends to be more reliable in the very early stages of an infection. So people can still get free PCR testing even without a referral by going to the state testing centres or a respiratory clinic. But a lot of people think about that PCR testing as our way of monitoring the virus in the community. But increasingly, that was not true. You know, the rapid antigen testing and self-reporting also wasn't a reliable surveillance tool. So the other thing that's going to emerge hopefully very soon, I'm surprised we haven't seen it before now, but is that comprehensive way the health departments across the country will be monitoring infection in the community. 
there will be some probably sentinel surveillance like we have for flu, where if someone goes to a doctor with symptoms that might be COVID, that they're testing them in the surgery rather than sending them off to a, a PCR or maybe yeah, a PCR as well if we want to understand what variants are circulating. So they'll be monitoring what's happening in the community. So we're moving away from that sense of self-testing and self-reporting to something that's more similar to other infectious diseases where it's in the hands of the doctors to refer people for testing. But it is important that access to antivirals is still supported. So that's the one exception where people who are likely to be eligible still have priority pathways that allow them to access PCR testing. And what about individuals who are trying to manage their own relationships, perhaps with vulnerable members of their families? Is there anything they can do to, to make rats, the rapid antigen tests, more reliable? You know, the first thing is symptoms trump a negative rat test. So if people have symptoms, it's not a good idea to have people over or to go and visit people, even if your rat test is currently saying you don't have COVID. It gets harder where people are more likely to have asymptomatic infections so they don't have a signal. Rapid antigen testing can still be useful to test. It doesn't guarantee you're not infectious, but it is another you know, safety net that means you're less likely to be infectious if you've tested negative on a, on a rat test. So as the world continues to edge closer and closer to a, a kind of normal with some adjustments, sure, China is still really quite close to the start of that journey. What will mm-hmm. the coming months in China mean for the rest of us, for the pandemic globally? Well, I think, you know, with human empathy, we know, everyone knows how hard the transition is to community transmission. And it's not something you can prevent. It's just something that you can potentially delay if you're willing to go to the extent that they have in China for so long. And it's the reality that we now are living with another human pathogen. And it's a serious pathogen. It doesn't mean that, you know, living with a virus is forgetting about it or it's okay now or it's over. It's actually transitioning to the reality that this virus is with us. So coming back to China, that transition is going to be on a scale that we can't imagine in Australia with the the size of the population in China. It's almost 20% of the world's population. So a lot of people are going to be impacted What is unknown in China is how effective their vaccinations will be in in a population that doesn't have any great degree of natural immunity because of the extreme measures they've gone to with their dynamic zero policy. But I think, you know, in in the short to medium term, we should be optimistic that, in fact, Omicron has has come along and, and and actually is nudging out other forms of coronavirus and and keeping Omicron as our circulating variant and thankfully not quite as severe in terms of illness as Delta and some of the previous variants. So while it's very infectious, that causes it to dominate. It's also pushing out the risk of other variants. So I think for the short term, actually having Omicron in the community, a, a variant that's that's adapted to become and remain the dominant variant with the sub variants now, you know, being the pattern of ongoing transmission, not new incursions, gives us some hope that we will see a bit more certainty going ahead. We're still living with the virus. It's still going to take work. But at, at least if it becomes a bit more predictable, that makes the virus something that we can live with in a different way than these great uncertainties we faced in the first few years of the pandemic. That's the Chair of Epidemiology at Deakin University, Catherine Bennett. 
Well, that's this week's episode. Now, we remind you every week, but once again, if you did like the pod, go and subscribe. It's called This Week and it's produced by Madeline Jenner, Nick Grimm, Anna John and me, David Lipson. 